The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor. We're sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and joined today, as uh, just about every Thursday, uh, by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning to you, Mitch. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Got, what do we have in terms of weather? We always start off with the weather. We've got, like, it's a little gray outside. You're feeling the autumn bite that, a little it's bit. It's not that strange for Chicago, Not right? that strange for Chicago. What's more strange is seeing the Cubs uh, at this level. The Cubs level, at the this playoffs. level, which is, is, is uh, they're in the National League, uh, the conference series. Championship series. Championship series. They can win okay. this series. They go to the World Series, and we haven't seen that our entire lifetime. 1945, I Something think. Something like that. And That's the 1909 since. Since the uh, I might have 08, the dates wrong. 08, 08, that's right. 1908 since they actually years. won. So we may see history. There was we'll, a curse from the Billy Goat. I don't know if we will we'll, 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 we'll jump over that. But at okay. some point in time, <laughs> if anyone wants to talk about it, uh, this is a nice Chicago lore about the man's goat wasn't allowed to see the game and he cursed them. That's right. That's been from able from way, way back. That's All right. right. So let's get on to what's going okay, on. Okay. Well, let me give the number out then. If okay. people do want to call, if they want to talk to you, Mitch, or they want to uh, discuss uh, what's going on in their portfolio, how to invest their assets, uh, the number uh, to call in. Oh, and you can also get a free stock market outlook uh, from Zach's Investment Management. And here's the number, 800-245-2943. Um, and uh, there's also a, a uh, you can email us at ziminfo at zax.com. There's also the website is zimwealth.com. So please check those out as well. Uh, okay. And Mark, it's a, it's a very good report. I mean, the report, I believe, the stock market outlook is written by John Blank, who has a that's right. PhD from uh, MIT uh, and uh, has been our strategist at, on the research side for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And he gives a very good uh, projection of what each individual asset class is going to do over the next uh, you know, one-year, three-year uh, period. Uh, so if you are interested in that report, you're welcome to give the number. Mark, what was the number again? It was yeah, a, it's 800-245-2943. Okay, okay. And hopefully a, someone will answer the, the phone and give you the free report, but it absolutely. is a very nice uh, report. Sure, it's very comprehensive. I've read yeah. it myself. It's uh, it's, it's global, it, it, not it's just good, domestic. It's an as institutional well. quality research report. Most definitely. Okay. okay, let's talk about what's happened in the markets. So just today, we had uh, U.S. jobless claims, as we have every Thursday morning. Okay. We're at a 43-year low. Um, and this is the 84th consecutive week that claims have remained be- below the 300,000 threshold, which indicates robust labor market conditions. Yeah. So we're at, we're lower lower than 300,000. We're lower than 250,000. It's 249, I believe was that was the number 249,250 uh, from the, this past week of initial jobless claims. That's great. It is good. The you know flip side of that coin is the labor participation rate. So there was a very good article over the weekend. I believe maybe it was yesterday in the New York Times 
uh, talking about changes in the uh, software industry in terms of the number of employee, um, um, employees they have. And what you've seen is that there's actually been a decrease in the number of employees since 1999-2000 in aggregate. So what's happening is the largest companies are employing fewer and fewer people mm. relative to what they have historically. So there's a decrease in the labor participation rate, but those skilled laborers are are not having, a, you know, there's more demand for them. Right. So the issue is that there's this, this, this schism occurring in the U.S. labor market where if the, the labor that is highly skilled has a demand and the labor that is unskilled doesn't have demand. And 20 or 30 years ago, that unskilled labor had a place to go, either a manufacturing uh, facility or even in a uh, even in software in, in some sort of technology fabrication. And, and this article is very interesting. They're talking about Apple and how, you know, the majority of the a people employed by Apple work in the retail uh, store. Right. 20, 30 years ago, the majority of people employed by Apple would be constructing the iPhones. But now that is uh, completely outsourced. Sure, so, so, so the issues I don't. But, but generally speaking, the lo, the low jobless claims numbers is going to give a greater impetus to the Federal Reserve uh, to raise interest rates. Right, right. I definitely was going to get to that. Um, I also want to say you were yeah. talking about the labor force participation around sixty three percent. I believe. Right. I think it's at all time lows mm -hmm. in terms of the percentage of able bodied people who are participating in in the labor force and the average work week. Is I want to, I, if I'm remembering from yeah. the non-farm labor report from last week, about 33 and a half hours a week, not even yes. a full work week. So. And then the, the, the negative is that the productivity of labor isn't increasing. So the GDP output per hour of labor worked is not changing. So this is all kind of consistent with there not being a huge increasing demand. It, it's all consistent with fewer people doing more through technology uh, conceivably. And with the efforts of outsourcing manufacturing. So the, when they outsourced the manufacturing, the jobs they got rid of were not replaced by new jobs. Because right. the new com the, the companies that, if you, if you think about GM being a very large company, the number of people they employed building the cars, managing the cars, managing the whole process, relative to the number of people necessary to get Facebook to work correctly, there's such a huge differential that if the future is more companies like uh, Facebook, uh, there's going to be downward pressure on labor uh, across worldwide. But generally speaking, the good uh, jobless number is sort of cover for the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates in, and, and in, I do in November get, and in December. Right. I do want to get to the interest, rate, interest rates. One more thing that happened today, we had the imports and export numbers yeah. for September that came out. So just a quick uh, uh, feel for how you, how you feel about this. Up. Point one zero point one percent in September. That's that's up from negative zero point two in August. Exports plus point three. So uh, that would indicate a net positive for the U.S. economy. In the yes, in the earnings reports that we're looking at, a lot of uh, attention is being drawn to the uh, dollar. So a lot of multinationals which are is blaming, which right? is strengthening. So they're blaming their weak earnings on a stronger dollar. So what they're saying is. You have a U.S. multinational selling, I don't know, uh, aluminum, 
competing against other companies selling aluminum. The U.S. multinational is saying it's harder for us to sell uh, because we have to we have all our costs in dollars and etc. And we're not going to meet our earnings because when uh, you know sales that are made in euros, even if production is in euros, when translated back to dollars are are less dollar amount. So there there is this issue fighting the Fed. So on the on the positive side, that would lead the Fed to to raise in November or December is the uh, very good job market. Right. right, the Federal Reserve only has two mandates: keep inflation low and keep people employed. That's correct. Inflation is low and people are employed, so they would say, "Okay, it's time to raise it." Corporate earnings, though, are saying essentially that they're not. Uh, you know that if you raise the interest rates, so if the interest rate on a dollar increases, people want more dollars. Right. So the dollar appreciates relative to the euro. Which puts a potentially downward pressure on earnings, essentially, especially for multinationals. Especially for multinationals, less so for smaller cap stocks. Okay, well, let's let's take that assumption though that we're going to see a quarter point raise in yeah. December, not right before the election, but let's say the month after that when the right. OMC meets. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You I think, think they might raise before the election? We've been talking about before. this for a while, and then my my traditional response has been they're not going to get involved with the election because they don't want to uh, cause something negative to happen before the election. But if you think of the Federal Reserve as having a bias, which they may or may not do, but given one group is saying they want to, you know, audit the Fed, and the other group is saying they want the Fed to continue to function as it is, you would think that the entire organization would have a bias towards the group that says we want the Federal Reserve to continue to function as it is. Yeah. If if that group looks like it's really going to win the election, uh, they may say yes. It's, it makes sense to raise in November. Because not only do we signal that we're raising, we completely signal to all these people, uh, you know, all the, the opposing party, we're independent of the political process. It's, we're ignoring the we're fact We're ignoring that the fact that it's like with so many people saying the Federal Reserve is not going to raise right before the election. Mm-hmm. Be, and then, well, if they don't raise before the election, they're proving their point, Right. So if they raise before the election, they're saying, "Listen, we don't, we don't. Uh, this, this is independent of what we're doing." So there's so much uh, turmoil around the election. The Federal Reserve might, and I don't think it's being reflected in the Fed funds rate at this point, uh, actually raise. And, and this is a new thought to me, and I don't think it's likely. I think the likely course of action is that they uh, defer in early November and then they raise in late December. Okay, and even if they do raise in November, pretty much the next month they're not going to raise again, right? They I don't let, know. I they, mean, they would let things kind of sit first, I imagine, right? The other thing they have about raising rates is this concept that Larry Summers has been analyzing the banks, and the banks are not doing particularly well based on valuation levels relative to book values. So price to book level. So like what you pay for the stock relative to the book value of the stock for banks, uh, for large multinational banks is actually below one. So you're saying that you're buying a large multinational bank and you're paying 80 cents or 70 cents or 60 cents for a dollar worth of equity in the bank. And the only reason you would do that if you think there's going to be a negative return on that equity over time due to you know legal settlements and this and that and no longer do it. So what they're saying is that all this regulation they've passed on the banking sector may have actually perversely caused the banks to become less safe because it makes people it makes their 
ability to earn money over long periods of time lower, which makes it harder for them to grow their, you know, if people are paying a dollar for 60 cents worth of bank uh, equity, right. they're, they're, they're implicitly betting that that bank equity is going to go, I mean, why do you pay, the only time we see that in the financial markets is when the company is, uh, I don't want to say wasting money, but it's destroying shareholder capital. So in companies that raised a lot of money and now they're not uh, generating positive earnings, you'll see it uh, trade potentially stocks uh, market value be below cash levels. And they say, well, why would you pay? Why would they buy the company for $60 million when they have $100 million in cash? It's because you see them wasting money month after month after month, quarter after quarter. And after you translate the cash to an after-tax basis or distribute it to shareholders, you, you have to pay taxes and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that price-to-book levels of multinational banks are low may also cause the, the central bank to want to raise rates. And the reason is if they raise rates, they help these uh, money center banks generate more earnings. Well, that's right, because if you raise the interest right. rates overall, then the banks will be able to Think charge this more. Way. Just from a standard point of view, if you're an individual and you have money in a savings account right now, uh, you know, most likely you're not making a tremendous amount of money on the savings account. Most likely it's not paying, it's paying close to zero. Mm. Now, if interest rates are five or 6% on the short-term rate, which they have been at some point in the past, mm -hmm. the bank will pay you 4%, 3% on your, your savings. Right. And they would pocket the difference that they can make. Sure. And right now there is no difference that they can make. So it's like, so that's another reason the Federal Reserve may want to be raising rates. The, the higher they can get rates, the more stable they make the uh, money center banks because the more profit they can uh, generate. So I would expect, uh, you know, so there, all this is leading me to believe there might be a move in November, but I, again, I think it's relatively unlikely. Sure. And well, we, the, the minutes from the last FOMC meeting were released yesterday, yeah. and we saw, uh, let, me, let me quote some yeah. of this. Uh, so the Fed Vice Chairman, Stanley Fisher, who you've talked yeah. about numerous times on The Steady Investor, said the decision was a close call. In, in, in the last meeting, right? In the last, in the last, in the right, most right, recent most meeting, recent when, meeting right. when there was still a chance. I think there was maybe a thirty percent chance yes, they were speculating yep. that they may have raised in right. What was that? September, right? right? Um, they didn't, of course. But uh, William Dudley, New York president, uh, said um, that that the officials can be quite gentle as we go in terms of gradually removing policy accommodation, meaning no rate right. raise, raise. Um, but there's a two thirds chance of a December rate increase, according to Dudley. Um, so we're seeing that kind of converge on a, 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 a single, looks like one raise for 2016. Right. But this is what I wanted to talk to you about, Mitch. Let's say the Fed goes for uh, two more increases in 2017. Okay. How do you envision our economic landscape being affected by well, it's, that? Well, it's, I think there's a, it's almost like a parlor game. Like everyone's sitting around saying, what is the Federal Reserve? What is the Federal Reserve going to do? And I think if you take a step back, the Federal Reserve only sets very, very short-term rates because they can set what uh, banks can deposit money with them at and what they will pay that bank at. Mm -hmm. They don't set the 10-year rate. The 10-year rate is set by bond traders, uh, you know, in the, the Tom Wolf style, sitting there and trading bonds uh, back and forth. Right, but bond <laughs> trading bonds back and forth and determining through a market of trillions of dollars what the, uh, what the, what the interest rate is that clears the bonds. And they're coming back and they're saying rates are very low. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, I don't think, I think, I, I, my belief is that when they do raise rates, the market's going to have a bit of a hiccup. It's going to trade down a little bit. There's going to be all this, uh, people are going to go a little bit, uh, get a little scared. They're going to sell off. I don't think on the long term, though, 
whether the Federal Reserve raised rates once or twice or three times, there's going to be a huge impact on the longer term rate. So the real question is not what is the Federal Reserve doing on the short term? The real question is why are the long term rates? Why are people willing to lend money uh, to the German government? Uh, and, and not to single out German, to, to many governments around the, the world at a very, very low rate. Or a that negative has, bond. A negative yeah. rate. Yeah. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with the, what the Federal Reserve is doing. And so the, the concern is that well, the benefit to equity prices, if those rates stay that low, if the expectation of the 10-year rate, if two years, three years from now, that 10-year rate is below 2%, uh, equities are going to be much, much higher because you just what's what's going on right now is that equities are attractive relative to bonds, and if if bond yields stay low, that disparity is going to uh, is to lessen effectively. Now, do you expect the ten year to stay low if, let's say, we're up to one and a half percentage points on that, the interest rate? That's a very good question, Mark. And and I have traditionally been saying that I expect the ten year rate. Uh, to effectively rise, and I've been wrong. If you would have talked to me three years ago, I would have said there's no way the 10-year rate's gonna stay below 2%, blah, 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 blah. And the reason yeah. is I keep looking at a graph of the historical 10-year rate. I see 10-year rates as low as they possibly can go, and I'm betting on some degree of mean reversion, that it's gonna revert to this historical level. Um, I still tend to believe that, and the fact that I'm even vacillating it, it tells me that's probably now even more that they're going to rise because uh, that usually happens at the end of the cycle when okay. the value investors start to believe that growth is the only way to go. And when the people who don't think interest rates are going to rise, think it's, it's not going to rise. And the people who think interest rates are going to rise are saying, well, maybe they're going to stay low for a long period of time. It's good to know it, your it, history on it, such it, things. It, it, it's, it, the opposite usually occurs. So okay. I, I continue to believe you're going to see interest rates rise. You're going to see tremendous turmoil in the bond market arena. You're going to see the equity-like bond instruments come under pressure, and the equity market's going to come under a lesser pressure, uh, but over periods of time, if you see earnings growth start to materialize, equities should continue to do relatively well. When you say bond-like equities, what are you referring to specifically? There's a group of equities that are kind of, they, they trade like bonds. Uh, so there I would put, we can get into this, uh, you know, there I would put things like master limited partnerships, okay. uh, REITs, Which are mostly uh, utility energy companies, companies like a utility company, for instance. <clears throat> sure. Their earnings are regulated, so they can't increase, you know, Commonwealth Edison in Chicago, whoever you're looking at, right. cannot just increase rates because they're getting more demand for electricity. So their earnings are pretty much regulated based upon the population and what they're allowed to charge. And, uh, you know, they're essentially a bond. They're, they have to pay a certain amount of money. They have a monopoly in that area. It's highly capital intensive. And utilities tend to trade closer to changes in interest rates. So I would definitely would not expect utilities as a sector uh, to outperform other sectors going forward. And in the majority of our strategies, we are underweighting utilities. Now, we're doing that because utilities aren't getting upward earnings estimate revisions. They have higher short interest. They have poor cash flow yield. Uh, they have very high dividend yield, but that's about the only thing they have really going for them. So I would expect over the next five to seven years, regardless of what happens, utilities will not perform as well as other sectors. Utilities right now are valued higher than the S&P 500. 
traditionally the PE multiple should be lower uh, than the S&P 500. So relative to the S&P 500, they're they're at very very high valuation levels. Okay, good. I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here, and we're gonna go for a short break in a, in a minute. You're listening to the Steady Investor. We're sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zacks, who is the portfolio manager and the founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, we're gonna take a short break and hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with the second segment. Please stay tuned. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to zimwealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor on voiceamerica.com's business channel. We're sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm speaking with Mitch Zacks, the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. And I wanted to give a number out. Um, if you'd like to receive a free stock market outlook from Zacks Investment Management, we were talking about it earlier uh, on the show. It's a very comprehensive, very thorough report. Um, and I, it would do you a world of good uh, to look this over. You need to receive it. Well, uh, all you have to do is call this number, 800 245 2943. And this is also the number uh, that you can call for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement. Uh, and you can speak to a representative at Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago. Again, that number 800-245-2943. Um, you can discuss at length your risk levels, investment strategies. Uh, if you'd like to email us, ziminfo at zax.com or visit the website online, which is zimwealth.com. Okay, Mitch, um, okay. we have an election coming up. We've steered clear of it for the better part of uh, the time we've been doing the Steady Investor yes. program, but now is kind of the, the witching hour. It's okay. coming close. Um, and you have an article uh, on the Mitch on the Markets, which is a weekly right. uh, article that comes out on Zach's Investment Management, why political gridlock is good for stocks. Yeah. Um, thinking about the, the, the outcome of the presidential election, you probably don't have much to worry. This is your quote, actually. Yeah. When thinking about the outcome of the presidential election, you probably don't have much to worry about when it comes to stock market, stock market investing. 
can you explain that? Sure. The, the best scenario and in, in trying to, you know, we have a whole paragraph in here on how we really are trying not to make, uh, we, we're, we're politically agnostic, uh, but the best scenario for the market is to have a division between the party controlling the presidency and the party in the House, which is controlling sort of the purse strings and the spending of the of, of the government. And uh, the, our best estimate is you're probably going to see a Democratic president and you're probably going to see a Republican House. And I think if you see that, that will be actually beneficial to the market. That's historically been historically the best combination. In, historically, if you look at it statistically, when there is gridlock in Washington, so when there is are different parties controlling different uh, elements of the government, or when the government is not in session, uh, you know, there's a, the market tends to do better. So if you look at how the market performs when Congress is in session, and you look statistically how the market performs when Congress is not in session, when Congress is not in session, and even when they have breaks in their sessions, uh, the market tends to do better. And the reason is there's less chance of change occurring. Sure, so the there's market, less uncertainty. There's less, think of it this way. If you're spending, you know, we have, you know, around $4.6 billion that we're investing for various clients, and uh, we have to make decisions uh, whether we're going to buy a uh, medical company, an HMO or something of that sort. Uh, a lot of that decision is dependent upon different regulations that are going to, to occur in Washington. Mm -hmm. If we know what those regulations are, we can make the decisions uh, and we can feel comfortable in them. If those regulations are constantly changing, we have to constantly be changing what the outlook is. And even if you're relying on something like analyst earnings estimates, those analysts are going to change their earnings estimates if there's a change in that regulation. So for an investor, what does that do? Well, you take these companies that have, you know, are very dependent upon uh, changes in Washington, mm -hmm. and you say, well, there's a chance that we have to discount the possibility of there being a, a change in Washington that's going to affect the earnings of this company. That's a risk. Sure. Maybe it'll. Maybe people will expect it to change it to the upside. Maybe people will expect it to change it to the downside. Maybe there'll be unintended consequences of these changes, political changes. But for the most part, it introduces a level of risk. Right. So if that risk is is, and it's very hard to evaluate quantitatively that risk level. Are they going to make that change now? Are they going to make it in six months? They said they're going to make the change. Are they really going to happen? Or is it just a political, uh, you know, diatribe they went through to get elected? Or is this really going to occur? And so it makes it it causes uncertainty, and as a result, there tends to be less equity allocated to that. Now, if instead they said we're not going to make any change in how our the medical system works for the next ten years, you would start seeing increase allocation to that sector. Okay. So, so the basic is that when you have gridlock, you're you're better able to evaluate what the earnings of the companies are going to be, and you have greater confidence in what those earnings are. So there's less uncertainty about the earnings. So you'll pay more money for the earnings. And this so, so that it's the same thing. If you, if, if you know that there's going to be no uncertainty from a regulatory perspective for some of these uh, sectors, the, the P multiples would increase right. uh, because uh, they're going to say, well, these earnings are going to be stable. So the, the market in general likes, uh, likes political gridlock because that causes less changes to occur 
for these companies effectively. Because another scenario would be, and this is, I guess, the least friendly outcome for stocks, is if the president-elect comes up with a supermajority in Congress, meaning both yes. the House and Senate goes with whatever the party. Now, it, why would that be the worst case scenario? No matter what the party is. So right. if the party is Republican and the Republicans take the Senate and the House and the Republican president, there are going to be all these changes that occur. Okay. Right. If the Democrats take the House, the, the presidency and the uh, the Senate, there's going to be all these other changes that occur. So when when change occurs, it it is detrimental to the markets because it decreases the certainty of the earnings. Earnings are already uncertain in terms of what a company is going to earn due to economic cycles and all sorts of micro uh, factors for that company. But if you interject into that, this political uncertainty, it really does drive, uh, it really does cause people not to want to invest. And so what you're comfortable with is when there's gridlock and uh, there are no changes that are occurring, right? So if they sell, if the Republicans, uh, you know, take all the three branches uh, the Senate, the House, and the presidency, right. then you start, well, what are they going to do? Which industries are they going to? And so you don't want either of those things to actually occur as an investor. Right. But in, in aggregate, not as an individual, not as someone making a political decision, but as, as an investor, you want as much gridlock as possible in Washington. You don't see there'll be a way to speculate uh, based on campaign promises, although it's, I, it's, it's exactly what we said last week. The market is going to discount that speculation far before uh, you're going to have any ability to to estimate what's going to occur. Sure. So if we see a supermajority <laughs> with the White House and all, you wouldn't be able to say, okay, well they said X, so we are the going to invest. The best way to determine whether you know the Democrats are going to take the House is look at the performance of the medical sector. If you start seeing it come under pressure, uh, that's going to tell you that the House races are, are shaping up so that the Democrats might win a majority. That's going to happen way before you're going to get the article in the New York Times and way before you know, you're going to have your polling uh, website tell you this is likely to occur. And we were speaking about this last week, that a lot of investors will read that article in the Times or and, the Wall and then Street expect, Journal. Okay, yeah, this is the thing. And by the time they've read the article in the Times or the Journal or the website that does the polling, uh, you're, you're going to be in a situation where the information is already reflected in stock prices. They're in the dust. Right. I, I wanted to mention to people who are listening to the Steady Investor, um, you can call in to ask a question to Mitch Zacks. Um, you can discuss um, your own portfolio or whatever questions you have, as long as it's market-based or investment-based. That number is 866-472-5790. And again, to contact a representative um, at Zacks Investment Management on how to best invest your assets for retirement, call 800 245 2943. Okay. Oh, all right. So what were we talking? We've talked about jobless claims. We've talked about political gridlock. We've talked about what else is there going on? Uh, you know, untapped potential in, uh, I guess you'd consider it tech, um, that globally we're seeing in the growth right. regions such as Africa. You know, right. people don't really talk about Africa very much, but it's the fastest growing continent in the world right now economically. And a company like Facebook is in discussions with multiple countries to do uh, drone projects and, and this sort of thing. Balloons and put the wireless uh, right. routers so the, on the and balloons. And this would connect people who uh, otherwise have no means uh, to things like, well, Facebook there's for two, sure, but just the internet in general. There's two theories in terms of economic development. One is that eventually what will happen is all the non-developed regions will become developed. So you have these uh, countries in the Europe, uh, the US, they become very developed, they have all this wealth that's being generated. Eventually what's going to happen is all these undeveloped emerging markets uh, start to catch up and they're going to become developed as well. Mm -hmm. And that I would say is the optimistic view. And that view is not actually what's been occurring. 
What, the other view is that the disparity between the developed and the emerging market uh, continues to persist over time. So that what happens is the developed market gets wealthier and the emerging market doesn't quite ever catch up uh, okay. with the developed market. And history has shown that the latter case is more likely uh, to materialize. So that we've been seeing instances that the, the, the countries that were emerging 30 years ago, they're still emerging. Yeah. There's not a lot of countries that you can point to, let's say, in Africa or in a developing region where you're saying these were developed markets, they, you know, they, they, they were emerging markets 20 years ago, and now they're developed markets. Sure. Maybe South Korea, you could look at them sure. and India, say, perhaps. and maybe yeah. even India is not a de <laughs> developed market, it's an okay. emerging market. So, so you, you have this constant uh, battle of these emerging countries to get to the developed market stage, and it's not something that is necessarily going to easily materialize. And so I generally, as a, a philosophy, tend to like U.S. equities more uh, than international equities. And it's just there. there's a safer bet in terms of the earnings you can generate uh, in the U.S. Uh, than the earnings you could potentially generate in the emerging market. In the emerging market, you have all these risks of repatriation of assets, of political risks, of, you know, essentially not... Uh, not having rights in the comp in the companies that are real risks. You could buy, uh, you know, let's even look at, at China. You could buy a Chinese company as a U.S. investor, and a political scenario could materialize where the Chinese government comes in and says, "Listen, we're very happy to have you build our country, but we're going to make a rule that says you can't receive dividends, or dividends first have to go to the Chinese sure. investors, or something yeah. of that sort, or you're going to have to sell all your shares to us at a discount." Mm -hmm. Right, because you can't hold them anymore. Right. So there's this risk with emerging markets, whereas if you buy a UK uh, British uh, company, you have a, you have hundreds of years of of legal history there that your rights are not going to be any diminished, are are not going to be any different than the rights of a shareholder in the UK. So that if you have a shareholder in the UK and you have a shareholder in the US and you uh, both own British Petroleum or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, that they don't suddenly say we're only going to give dividends to the UK shareholders. They haven't done that for hundreds right. of years. They're not going to do that now. In China, you don't have that. You have 20 years, 15 years, 30 years of uh, capitalism and not even that. And so in this sort of instance, you're saying, well, your bet when you buy a company is not that you're going to get the earnings next month or next year. It's 20, 30 years out that the dividends start accruing to you and the earnings growth is so substantial that someone might buy the company. You, you, you're betting that the legal system in these developing areas remains pro-capitalist, pro-West for another 20 to 30 years. That's and a hard bet to and make. That's, yeah. and, and given the history, it's not clear that that is going to uh, materialize. So it's like, I don't think, and, and you can just think of, years ago there was a there was a Russian company called Vimpol Communications, which was creating cellular towers all throughout uh, Moscow and against Russia, sure. and this was, and it was the hottest uh, cellular company around. And what happened is, there it, it never quite panned out, because they never quite managed the company for investors. They, 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 took all the assets and sold them to other people and things of that sort. So yeah. you, you, you have this issue over time of saying you're, there are two bets. There's one bet on the company, but it, instead of just being a new company, it's a new country. Yeah. And there's a bet that the new country continues to operate uh, the way it has. And uh, very recently, as opposed to just saying, well, this is a fad 
and uh, they've decided to go someplace else. But it, it really is an issue. It's like if you look at what happened with Uber and selling their their Chinese operation. It's a good point. Yeah, right. they they raised billions upon billions of dollars in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They went to China. They spent it massively building out the Chinese infrastructure. Yep. And then they sold it to a Chinese company. Why? Because they had to. Because they had to. Not because it was, I, I don't believe that Uber was less sophisticated or a, a worse competitor uh, in China than it's the U.S. It's like they, they, all these little roadblocks that were thrown up for them to prevent them from competing. Right. So what naturally happened, China got a tremendous amount of investment from U.S. shareholders mm-hmm. and no return. And if there was a Chinese Uber and it's public and you go and buy it, you're doing the same exact thing. So I'm not saying it will happen, but I'm saying that that sort of what we've seen with British Petroleum and their Russian operations, what we've seen in Uber and their Chinese operations is that it all looks good from the outset when the country needs money for development or for growth. But sometimes there's almost mercantilism at, at, at work, and they will say essentially, no, we are not going to get the same returns. So what happened is U.S. investors funded the, uh, you know, the uh, the Chinese economy in terms of developing new technology. Right. They took all this new technology from the U.S. that Uber developed, cutting-edge technology, they put it in China, and uh, the Chinese said, oh, yes, please put it in, you can compete. They try and compete, they can't compete, and it's sold to a Chinese uh, company. Right. So the benefit of that is the it, it, are the consumers in China that get Uber act action for very, very uh, low dollar amounts. But that sort of concern played on a macro basis could conceivably happen with, uh, I don't want to pick on China, with any developed country and uh, raising money in the U.S. essentially. So as a result, until we're 20 more years into these emerging markets doing well, I would try and over weight uh, U.S. companies as opposed to Chinese, uh, as opposed to international companies. The market is not oblivious to that, and that's why U.S. companies trade at a higher P.E. multiple. Sure. And also, who's got a better uh, you know, finger on the pulse of emerging markets anyway? Right. Uh, other than U.S. equities, uh, U.S. companies, I mean. Uh, so if there is... You can patch them in. You have two questions. Oh, uh, we, we have two have, questions. We have two questions. Okay, okay, can we do that after the break, or do you want to do that right now? Uh, can we do one? Okay, oh, sure. So let's ask... Uh, that's Craig, our producer, coming in. So let's go ahead and. Uh, so we have a question that, that's that's calling in to the study investor. David is the first caller. So okay, we're going to hear from David right now. Hello. Go ahead, David. Yes, sir. Hi. Yeah, I have a question for Mitch. Uh, Zach. Sure. Okay, um, go ahead. I'm, yeah, I'm sitting on the sidelines right now. Uh, I'm just sitting in cash, and I keep hearing uh, all this election talk and to hold off until the election is over. And I'm just kind of wondering what I should do if I should sit on the sidelines or kind of what impact that may have uh, in the near future with the equity markets. Sure, David, that's an excellent uh, question. And uh, what, what it basically boils down to is that the, it, it, if, as the likelihood, if, a Demo- if, if the Democrats win the presidency, the market should go up about 4%. If the Republicans win, the market should go down about 7%. As the likelihood of the Democrats or the Republican Republicans winning increases, that amount is becomes discounted in the market. So if you approach the election and it's a very, very close election and it's 50-50 and it breaks one way or the other, you're going to see that movement on election day. But what's happening is the Democrats seem to be getting uh, more, uh, doing better in the polls. 
the likelihood of their winning is increasing and the market is uh, incorporating that uh, that bonus. So as a result, by the time the election actually rolls around, uh, you're, there's going to be very little impact on the market. So at the current levels of polling, my best estimate is that the 4% increase uh, for the uh, U.S. equity markets in the case of a Democrat uh, victory is going to already be incorporated in the markets. And then when that uh, materializes, you're likely not going to see a dramatic move. So if you assume that the chance of the Republican candidate winning is now like, I don't know, 18, 12, 15, 18 uh, percent, the effective thing that you're going to see is not this. The m- most important effect, David, though, is to realize that you have to focus on the long term and any fluctuation you see uh, should, for the most part, be ignored because your time horizon is, is longer than just a month. Uh, but generally speaking, even if your time horizon is a month, in this instance, the election should be ignored, or if anything, there'll be a slight positive to the market when it breaks. Now, if the election breaks for the Republicans, uh, you know, the market will trade off, uh, but there'd have to be some very strange event to occur uh, for that to materialize. David, thank you very much for calling in and for your question. Uh, take okay. care. Thank you very we're gonna, much. We're going to take a short break on The Steady Investor. We'll come back with some more questions um, from other listeners, so please stay tuned. the boardroom to you voice america business network the steady investor show is brought to you by zach's investment management a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers at zach's we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients needs With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to zimwealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery talking with Mitch Zacks, the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. We have another caller on the line. Is he on the line? Noah from Chicago? Noah. Noah from Chicago. Yeah, this, is, yeah, this is Noah from Chicago. I got a question for Mitch. Uh, I've got close to about 500000 and I'm looking for another firm to invest in. Just uh, wondering, what do I need to ask when I'm interviewing for a new firm? Uh, Noah, that's a, a very good question, and uh, one thing I think you should ask for is whether the firm is acting as a fiduciary for you, so that there's a huge distinction between a registered investment advisor, which we are, 
and sort of uh, a standard broker dealer. And there there have been some changes in this, but basically, as a fiduciary, we have to be uh, working in the interests of the client as opposed to selling a product. Uh, so we have to always be uh, taking the client's best interest into mind uh, as we uh, make decisions. And over long periods of time, if you're uh, working with an advisor and that advisor is compensated uh, based on the percentage of assets that uh, you have, that, that advisor has a huge incentive to try and get those assets as high as they possibly can be. Uh, so I would say work with someone who's a fiduciary and work with someone whose compensation is tied uh, to the growth of the assets over time, as opposed to the amount of, uh, as opposed to a product that is being sold or someone who's working and trying to sell some things. The other things I would say is if you look historically over time, there's always a tendency to look for private equity investments or venture capital investments. And statistically, over long periods of time, these investments that are available to even high net worth investors uh, tend not to perform very well or as well as just being long the market. So the key is to try and have a relatively plain vanilla outlook in terms of equity and bonds and try and just hold those instruments for a long period of time, uh, work with someone who's a fiduciary and work with someone who's uh, being paid based on the size of the assets and had therefore has an economic incentive uh, to try and grow those assets uh, over time. Uh, where people run into problems is one, they, they try and buy a product which is promising something that uh, is hard to be delivered. And uh, two, they, they tend not to have be steady in their investing, uh, so they're constantly moving in and out of uh, equity and debt. And what we try and do at Zacks is we, we try and make sure the equity and debt mix is consistent with the risk level, and that uh, equity and debt mix is then maintained over long periods of time, regardless of what's going on in the market. And that philosophy has enabled us to, to, to substantially help clients over long periods of time. It's not an exciting philosophy, but it is the philosophy that works, and it is what we what I've built the firm around. So Noah, thank you very much for the question. Yes, thanks for your question, Noah. All right, take you. care. Um, listeners to The Steady Investor can call in to ask a question of Mitch Zacks. Uh, as you've just heard, that number is 866-472-5790. Um, also, um, if you would like to speak to a representative at Zacks Investment Management about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call uh, 800-245-2943. You can send us an email at ZimInfo, that's Zim for Zacks Investment Management, at Zacks, Z-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, the website online is ZimWealth.com. So please check out those. Um, and hopefully we'll hear from some more people uh, with some other questions uh, about how they'd like to manage their assets. Um, okay, so we were talking in the last segment, Mitch, about uh, the election. We try to avoid it. It's it's unavoidable now. We have to kind of look at it. And you're basically saying there's a very strong chance that the Democratic candidate, who is uh, Hillary Clinton, right. is going to become the 45th president of the United States. So on the stump, in the campaign, what she's been the industry I think she's most gone after, uh, people may dispute this, I suppose, uh, would be the pharma companies that uh, raise the price of the Epi EpiPen, right. for instance. Um, uh, Humana, uh, a health insurer, was just hit um, receiving lower rater ratings from um, uh, Medicaid services and Medicare. Um, do you think that there is a risk for investing in this general industry and sector uh, with a Clinton presidency? No, as long as there is gridlock in Washington. So as long okay. as the Republicans maintain the House you're not going to see this uh, sort of change. And also, uh, I, I think someone who's 
less ideologically focused might have a better chance of making less changes. So someone who comes into the Say office that again? less ideologically focused. So someone who's like a rabble rouser on the left or the right and they're very okay. emotionally attached and they're it's someone who's just trying to consolidate power kind of just doesn't want to upset this group doesn't want to upset that group doesn't want to, they're trying to play all the groups and the the constituencies off each other so no one is really bothered and they can stay in office and uh, I think that you're likely going to see some movement in this direction or that direction but overall I don't think it's a negative uh, for 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 the uh, pharma industry. I think uh, a, a better question is whether uh, for pharmaceutical companies, uh, whether generic drugs are uh, such that you, you, you're not seeing the R&D occur at these large pharmaceutical companies that occurred, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. Right. So the, the traditional, uh, you know, there would be such profits being made from the drugs, there'd be massive investment in research and development, that research and development uh, would generate new drugs, and uh, you would go to these large pharmaceutical companies, and they say, "Well, we're not quite sure where our next blockbuster drug is, but it can be one of these twelve things." Sure. And they still will give you that presentation, uh, but uh, increasingly, what they're doing is they're acquiring startup companies. Uh, so the company will raise some money uh, from venture capitalists. They'll try and do drug development. When it looks promising, a large pharmaceutical will swoop in and essentially purchase it. So the, the, the concern that I have with uh, drug development is that all of it is essentially becoming outsourced uh, to the capital markets. So, so the, the large pharmaceutical companies are saying, listen, instead of spending massive amounts on R&D where it doesn't go in this direction, doesn't go in that direction, let's just let the venture capitalists uh, and uh, you know, these newly, uh, newly nascent uh, IPO companies engage in all the drug development. Right. And they'll then uh, buy the ones that work. Uh, so they say, great, we'll pay a lot for the ones that work, but we will avoid paying for all the ones that don't work. Well, they're mitigating the risk. They're mitigating Pfizer the risk. And I, and I'm not, it's not certain to me that that is the best for you know that drug company over time. Is that And the reason that this is happening is because the focus on earnings that uh, investors folks have, uh, force the drug companies to have. So if, if you're constantly focused on earnings and the management of these companies are constantly focused on the stock price, the way they get that stock price to go up is to increase their earnings per share. Right. Uh, if you're going to miss earnings this quarter, what you do is you cut your R&D development costs. So sure. R&D is reflecting, is, is reducing earnings. So if they're trying to constantly move earnings up, they're constantly getting rid of R&D and investment in the company. They're constantly outsourcing that to the capital markets. And that will work, but I'm not quite certain that it's a better model over long, long periods of time. Than just having than just uh, uh, having an R and D investing department. in the R and D group. And uh, a lot of developments that we've seen from technological standpoint occurred because there were these monopolistic uh, companies, uh, Xerox, AT and T, that had monopolies. Mm -hmm. They're making such high profits they could uh, fund groups of scientists work independently of any sort of economic focus. Sure. And uh, they developed the transistor and they developed uh, the GUI interface and they developed the mouse uh, and uh, they developed the, you know, the Macintosh operating, not the Macintosh operating system, but the GUI, you know, uh, uh, visual interface. And uh, I, my question is whether these developments would, will continue in the future. Who's going to develop the next transistor? Who's going to develop the next mouse? Uh, the, the transistor obviously more important than the mouse. Uh, but the question is, it's not clear to me that that development would have occurred if it was required that a venture capitalist 
fund someone who raises their hand and says, I have a great idea, I'm going to develop a transistor. Right. They, 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 they won't do that. They'll right. say, I have a great idea, I'm going to develop this technology, which is 80% of the way there, and I've worked at it, right? But they're not, so, so the chance for large breakthroughs occurring from a technological standpoint is conceivably reduced as corporations start to outsource the R&D budget. So by outsourcing the R&D budget to acquisitions, the company becomes more profitable. It's probably better for shareholders, but the chance of coming upon a technological change that is truly revolutionary decreases dramatically. Right. Because that company that's outsourced to create the next transistor, they'll try it for two years, three years, doesn't work, that's it, everyone disperses and they go on to try something else. Right. So it's, it, the level of focus that is occurring in the R&D departments across corporate America is becoming more and more and more reduced and shorter. And so the question is, is that good? Well, it's good if you're managing the company towards trying to get the CEO to make the most money over the next three years because they want the earnings per share to be absolutely the highest. Sure, right. They only want to pay for a product if they know that it's been approved and they can sell it. But it also stops large technological changes from potentially materializing. And that's occurring across the technology standpoints, occurring across the pharmaceutical groups. It's this short-termism in terms of uh, corporate management, which I'm not quite sure is incredibly positive uh, for technological development. Right. Well, there's another thing, too, with a lot of the smaller pharma and biopharma companies is that they go public so they can raise capital yeah. to, to uh, do their work and, and, and look for the treatments and, and medications. But so if a company comes in and buys them, they're also buying a lot of debt. Those companies don't have earnings. Well, they, 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 they're not buying debt. You generally don't have debt. They have a lot of cash and they have a lot of this stuff. But what happens is statistically, if you look at creating a portfolio of new biotech companies, they will underperform over time. And okay. the reason is there's a drug that's being developed. There's a 10% chance that that drug is going to be developed. There's a 90% chance that drug is not going to work. And investors who believe that the chance is 20% or 30%, if an investor believes the chance is 20%, they'll pay two times what the market value is. Okay. So you have all these investors out there, and there's some percentage of them that believe the chance of the drug development is 20%, not 10%. Well, if the stock's trading at $10. It's really worth 20 They'll pay 12, 13, 14, 15, and there are enough of those people out there that that price of that biotech stock will go up to 13, 12, 14 dollars. And so it, they, they tend to be overvalued as a class relative uh, to the chance of the drug being developed. So it tends to be a very bad investment idea to own large portfolios of diversified biotech companies. That being said, one of that uh, one of one in one company in that com in that portfolio of twenty will go up in value by three times. It'll be the home run. It'll be the home run. Everything else but, is a strikeout. Right. So everything else is a strikeout, and it's not a good bet over long periods of time to do it. And a lot of our models, especially in the small cap space, that look at things such as earnings estimate revisions and short interest relative to shares outstanding, are indicating right now you should be underweighting biotech. Uh, because short interest goes up. So again, you have this biotech company, 10% chance the drug is developed, 90% chance it doesn't work. What happens is some people think it's a 20% chance the drug's going to be developed. They'll pay twice it. So they'll bid up the stock from $10 to $11 to $12. Right. And all the people who think there's only a 10% chance will start shorting the stock and they'll start increasing short. So they'll start increasing their short interest. So they tend to have higher short interest than other groups of stocks because there's this great disparity amongst investors of what the underlying company is potentially uh, worth. 
And as a result, those companies tend over long periods of time in aggregate, if you own all of them, uh, to underperform. And so, so generally speaking, uh, it, you want to be avoiding biotech companies. And if I could give everyone, anyone who's listened uh, this long gets a, a hint or a, a trading hint or an insight, there is this strategy that looks at insider buying and insider selling. And I just want to be clear, what that means is that when the corporate executives of these companies want to buy shares or sell shares, they have to register and let everyone know they're going to buy a certain number of shares or they're going to sell a certain number of shares. Insider buying and selling is most effective amongst these biotech companies. There's only, for these biotech companies, there's three people who understand whether the, the drug is going to work. It's usually the CEO or the corporate management, someone in the FDA who's really involved in it, and maybe a few research scientists across the country that can really evaluate it. If the CEO is then buying shares of his biotech company, mm -hmm. that's a very strong signal uh, that it's going to go well. If the CEO is reducing the shares he has, that's a very strong signal that their drug development might not work. That's not, it doesn't have the same effect if you're talking about the CEO of Procter & Gamble. CEO True. could be buying Procter & Gamble stock to make some signal or he, he just has some extra money to spend. He could be selling Procter & Gamble stock because he you know, wants to buy a, a new estate in Ohio or whatever. Right. Uh, but in the biotech space, when you start seeing insider buying and insider selling, it's extremely uh, important to pay attention to it. Very interesting. Uh, for those listening to The Steady Investor who would like to get a free stock market outlook report, call 800-245-2943. That's also the number to talk to a representative at Zach's Investment Management uh, right here in Chicago about how to best invest your assets for retirement, um, discuss your length, uh, risk levels, and investment strategies that are best for you and your family. You can email us at ziminfo at zax.com or visit our website online at zimwealth.com. Uh, Mitch Zacks, uh, it's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, another Thursday come and gone. Um, well, actually, we do have another minute. So we're basically looking at, we're looking for gridlock in Washington, D.C. Come we're election hoping, time. Hoping we're ho for, hoping, hoping for gridlock. For gridlock. Uh, so that would mean, let's say, a Democratic president and then uh, Republican a Republican House. House. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, those companies that are... Um, uh, that are, so so uh, in I'll leave the, the utilities, REITs, yes. these that are yeah, going to come under some pressure. They're going to come under some pressure. And then the final thing I will say is that when the Federal Reserve does fully signal they're going to raise rates, you're going to see some selling in the U.S. equity markets. If you uh, do not see any real decrease in GDP growth and you don't see any real pullback in earnings, so if the Federal Reserve makes the correct decision and doesn't raise rates when earnings are going to be declining that pullback should be a buying opportunity for investors. Very good. Let's leave it right there, Mitch. Okay. Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you next week. Please join us for The Steady Investor next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?